Hello and welcome back to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics, break down the biggest games, and I'm joined as always by my good friend Rodrigo Plaza. How are you doing this week, Rodrigo? It doesn't stop, Duffy. It doesn't stop. Every weekend, not the same story, but the same pattern of stories. Upsets, lots of goals. And I feel like I feel like in some sense this was all just to make our lives, you and me, harder. You know, the Premier League was like, hey, they're starting a pod- podcast. They want to try to talk about every game. You know what? Let's make more goals than you can count on both hands every weekend. Let's have upsets right and left. The pundits going off. I think they might have done it just to spite us. But I'm excited to be here. Honestly, just so that this feels like my therapy for the week. Just something to, to, I don't even remember what happened. I just want to explain my impressions of what happened, you know? Some impressionist art, hopefully, is what we'll try to make here today. And I walk away with a little bit less of this load on my shoulder. So much in so little time. I feel you on both of those statements. I think uh, therapy, I need it after having to watch Arsenal for 90 minutes. Um, It's really nice to be able to digest all the Premier League with you um, after watching that tough game. And also, yeah, the Premier League is totally screwing with us. The number of goals is, it's ludicrous. It's it's out of pace for any season. Um, You had some some sharp intuition. I think you were just noticing a lot of early goals and uh, crunched the numbers on this. This season, in 28 matches... Uh, in the first 15 minutes of, of a match, we've had 0.6 goals per match, uh, which may not sound like a ton, but in all seasons dating back to 2012, the highest we've ever had before that is 0.35. So we're almost double the number of goals in the opening 15 minutes. And there, it's just the floodgates open and the goals just keep flowing. Um, we had, I think it might have been a record for a Premier League weekend. I, I'm not 100% sure on that. But we are highest goal count through three weeks. So, yeah, the universe is just like, here, information overload. uh, See what you guys can do with it. Our predictions maybe were not the most on point. So apologies uh, to our listener for that. I think we both liked Brighton in an upset. And we both left that game feeling pretty upset. little wordplay for you guys. Um, Love that. Love that. And you nailed Liverpool Arsenal. You were right that that was going to be a. It's just two different class teams. But um, let's let's hop right into talking about all the games and just kind of gloss over the fact that we didn't, we didn't quite quite nail those predictions um, yeah. this week. Yeah, but, it wasn't wasn't quite our week. But I will say, I will say, we did uh, we did point out some. Um, we, we we touched on all the games that would be interesting to watch, even if we were devastatingly wrong. <laughs> At least we point you in the right direction, you know. Um, let's actually start with that Brighton game, and I think that's a a, a hot spot to be starting. Uh, but Brighton lost this game to Manchester United three to two. Uh, the game kind of kicked off with Brighton looking the more dangerous team through the first half. Uh, we did nail Lamptey being really good, and he played really well, and he was really. Uh, dominating the right side of the field for Brighton. 
Neil Mape scores a 40th minute penalty, proceeds to do a little crying uh, celebration in front of the Manchester United empty stand or what would have been the away stand. And um, Unbelievable. I almost cried myself from I, tears, of course, but still. Questionable to do that in the first half in a game that's clearly not wrapped up. And United start to apply some pressure. They get a little lucky on an own goal, kind of pinged around in the 43rd minute, going to the game level. And it felt like it probably should have been level. Um, and then Marcus Rashford really just had this one great run in the 55th minute to score for United to put them ahead. I had sort of felt some concerns about him and his form to start the season. I hadn't thought he was particularly good. Um, But Brighton just had pressed up front. Their defense hadn't really got to reset, and Rashford exploited the space and scored a nice goal. Um, And then it just sort of went nuts. Like, Brighton just really put in this all-out attack, and they had four chances almost in a row where the ball is on the right and it gets crossed over the top to the left to Trossard. And Aaron Wan-Bissaka is just totally out of position. He's pulled way into the middle. Trossard has all this space. And Trossard proceeds to hit the bar, each one of the bars, three times. I think Brighton in total hit the bar five times in this game. So you just have to feel like if they have their shooting boots on a little bit better, a little bit straighter, then they're walking away with this game with the win. Um, but Sally Marsh found the goal in the back of the net, hits a nice ball in, kind of on a similar play um, to put Brighton up, uh, or sorry, to give Brighton the tie. And it seems like the game is done, and then kind of all hell breaks loose, right? The United get the kickoff, and they run down, and, and they earn this penalty after the whistle has been blown. Have you ever seen that happen before? Absolutely not. In fact... I don't know what the official rules are, but I, I would, if I had been a player in a game where such a thing had happened, I would never have read the rule book, but I've gone to the grave saying that that's absolutely not allowed. Once the whistle blows for the end of game, the game is over. But, you know, with VAR, which, of course, I've never played with, I guess I guess that's still fair play. I mean, I'll tell you this, as a, as a someone from the outside, I thought that was just absolutely, I mean, it was... It was it was it was nearly evil to do that to a team to blow the final whistle and to call a PK a PK too of all things after the after the fact was just it's heartbreaking I mean heartbreaking especially the I mean the handball I understand like I I, I it's 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 in the middle for me Same. but funny that Mape was the guy who did it <laughs> oh my goodness it was it was again like a like a like a like a like a classic Greek tale. The, the the tears he left in the corner of the field just to go pick them up again as he walked off. I mean, I I didn't want to think about that too much, but his hubris, his hubris may have come back for him at the end of the game. I, I think cruel is the right word. It just cruel. seemed kind of twisted to, to do that. And Manchester United, something bad is going to happen to you all for that. I hope you know that. Um, I hope there is some justice in the world. And yeah, that the, it was just disgusting. Um, yeah. One I, one thing, but before we keep, move on, though, keep going. Brighton. I want to be clear; they had a great game, and it, I feel Excellent. like, of course, the, the the late PK, 
Um, and the fact that they ended up losing, and you know, even with the goal they scored was a tie. They played an. I think they played an excellent game. And when we said, you know, when we said last week that we both had our eyes on that game as an exciting game, um, you know, it's still. I think it. It's incredible that that should be a game. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Manchester United playing Brighton. I mean. I, I, to me, it's not even a surprise because after the game, I feel strongly about what we said and we are where we are now. But hindsight being 2020, I mean, think about last year or the year before. I mean, this is craziness to me that that should be such an even match. And I think not only was it because Manchester United, and I think if you listen to our, our last week's show, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, I think, where they struggled. I think they struggled again in a very, very similar way. I think their approaches to trying to score were limited. They got lucky that... Brighton, I think, was trying to push as hard as they were and press, uh, especially in the first half. Um, without some of that, I don't think they would have had the same chance as they did. And even then, they were limited. I mean, they scoring what on a, on a set piece, um, and then and then you know a, a, a nice in behind play by by Rashford. I just feel like they didn't play as well. But Brighton definitely has some strength. They have some things they can pull off here, and that th- those movements to the right hand side, crossing to the back the back left. I mean. Like you said, we hit every bar. A little, a little degrees of difference. The one that hit the right bar too. So close. Uh, cruel. Cruel is the word to describe this entire game. Cruelty to Brighton. Perhaps it's all Mape's fault. He, it, but at the same time, you know, <sighs> I walked away. That, that game, that game. Oh, I was rattled. Rattled Me after that game. Me too. I think next week we can we should assess. Manchester United one more time and see how Pogba does but I really have my eye on him he's been very poor and I don't know if it's a fitness thing but he was really atrocious in this game and it's rare to use a word like that to describe such a class player but I think we should maybe punt that down the road and give him the benefit of the doubt but I want to move on to talk about Everton Crystal Palace quickly kind of a 2-1 win to Everton felt like a pretty straightforward game for them um, not a whole lot of controversy here. Uh, there, there was a question of a handball on Calvert-Lewin late in the game. Um, Crystal Palace, you know, trying to play that really compact counter style. And Everton just has a really strong midfield. And their midfield ran this game. Uh, Calvert-Lewin got a nice goal to start in the 10th minute. And Crystal Palace got a nice set-piece goal from Kiate in the 26th. Richarlison penalty, and that's kind of the difference. But um, I, I thought Crystal Palace had some chances here. I thought Everton just controlled the ball in the middle of the pitch, and that was really able to dictate this game. So I don't have a ton to take away from this game. Everton are, are good. They're a good team, and, and they're going to be um, – in the mix for top six, if not top four, for sure. So exciting to see some added challengers. Did you have any thoughts about this game? Or I'll say this. I didn't see the game. I left that one to you. But uh, I was I was, I was, was glad to see that Crystal Palace could hold their own. I, like we said, I think I think that this, this, this season in general, I mean, we, we're just seeing crazy things going on right now, and we'll see how it continues, if it, if it continues with this, with this level of, an, of, of wildness. But... Um, I think it's going to be tight. I really, I really think that these teams have have shown that they can they can score goals, 
And at this point, it seems like that's really the only thing that matters. Can you score goals? How many can you score? Um, so yeah. glad it was an exciting game still. Uh, and yeah, Everton is, Everton is strong. I, I, I guess maybe the one last note I should add about this game Keep your eye on Eze. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his last name. He's this young guy who Crystal Palace picked up from QPR. And I didn't think he was particularly dominant in this game, but he plays with such confidence, being a young player just coming into this side with a lot of veterans. Crystal Palace is an old team with a lot of Premier League vets. And I was really impressed just with the way that he was making these nice runs, calling for the ball, um, and, and really trying to dictate the game. So I, I think he's a player to, yeah, definitely keep an eye on and, and follow um, if you happen to be into Crystal Palace. Wow, the next game, and part of the reason I raced through is because this one was an absolute barn burner. West Brom 3, Chelsea 3. I, I've, I, I don't even know where to begin. This was such an insane game. I I guess I want to start by just saying, at what point do we start to question Frank Lampard at Chelsea? These sort of results, to me, they feel like, yeah, there's some issues in the squad, there's some issues in the defense, but uh, is Frank setting them up to be successful in the way that he is managing this squad? I, I don't know. I... I just have a really hard time picturing Jurgen Klopp trotting out the same Chelsea team and drawing 3-3 and conceding three goals in open play to West Brom. Um, For people who didn't watch the game, West Brom scored three goals in the first half to go up 3-0. In the first 27 minutes. In the first 27 minutes. The first half of the first half. And... And then Chelsea closes the gap, and Chelsea had some nice goals, some nice production from their young players. I don't want to knock their – the Mason Mount scored, Callum Hudson-Odoi scored, Tammy Abraham scored. That's really nice to see. A little alarming is Timo Werner still not on the score sheet in a Premier League game. Kai Havertz still not on the score sheet in a Premier League game. Kai Havertz got a nice assist in this match. But, yeah, I – really had high expectations for Chelsea coming into this season. And this was an alarming game. Um, They really made some poor mistakes in the back. And Marco Alonso definitely is the the weak link in that defensive set. The word is that after the game, he ended up uh, at halftime. He didn't go back into the locker. He was watching the game from the team bus. So there's also some drama there. I think Frank Lampard is really mad. I could see Marcos Alonso not really seeing the Premier League pitch again in the near future. What, what, what are we thinking for Chelsea moving forward? Is it just that they have some injuries and it's taking some time for players to adjust? Don't panic. Or is it like, hmm, alarm bell should be ringing? You know, it's a good question. And I think that... You and I, I mean, we ha- you have just as much information as I do, you know. I mean, we, we only know what we get to see on the field. And the things that jumped out to me were that the first three goals, first of all, let's give credit to, to, to the score here. I mean, Robinson on the first two especially, clean strikes, 
I mean, like, you know, a clinical finish, really. I mean, clean, on the ground, to the opposite side. He's making those count, and he only really gets those two. I mean, like I said, it happens in the first 27 minutes. I don't know how many more chances you would expect, especially against a team like Chelsea uh, coming from West Brom, but he gets both of them, and he tags them beautifully. I mean, on top of that, though, each of these goals was, was a pretty fatal mistake by a defender. And, I mean, when it comes down to it, defenders can't make mistakes. I mean, it, maybe it sucks to play a position where that's the case, but that's just that's just the way it works. You don't, you can't make, make mistakes as a defender when the ball is in the back line to when you have possession of the ball is, I mean, that's, that's absolutely deadly every time. You have to be, you know, so lucky for it not to be a wide-open chance, right? Your expected goal should go way up. If you're confronted with the opponent making such a such a fatal mistake, and so it's a little bit tricky because I agree it's hard to imagine Jurgen Klopp coming out there and fielding such a result. On the other hand, I don't know that I can blame Lampard for those mistakes. You know, they seem seem to me. I'll say this, the big picture, it feels to me, and this is like very hand-wavy explanation, right? So maybe the stats people out there will shake their finger at me and tell me something deeper, (laughs) but it feels like they haven't gelled really quite yet. Um, The defensive line, you know, made some fatal mistakes, but it feels like in some small way it had to do with the fact that like, Thiago seemed out of place like he didn't seem like not not on the field tactically but he seemed like he didn't really know the people around him he didn't seem like he was commanding ordering the back line uh Marcus Alonso maybe is a head case now I mean even before I mean he made the the terrible header uh into the center of the field in his own third to lead to that 12 type error right there I mean really I mean terrible he he even though this doesn't lead to a goal, he gets beat in like a forty yard run down the sideline by a Jai, who I think is a, a defender for, for West Brom. Um I can't remember what position he plays, but he he, may, he thoroughly beats him down the line and then, you know, continues to just lose his mark in the third goal. I mean, he he played really poorly. So I don't know what's going on there. Um like you said, it seems like there's perhaps a little bit more uh, than than just what happened on the field that day, um, but that's that, that didn't seem to go well. Timo Werner hit the crossbar yeah. early on. I mean, it was bad defending. To the, someone tried to step on the on the back line and, and left him essentially with the free lane, which which you know he tried to make the most of. I I feel like Timo Werner is is just a little bit shy on the confidence. I feel like he's just not quite comfortable yet. Um, I keep seeing, on the other hand, these great moments for players on Liverpool who are new. Um, I know we'll get into that later, but you know yeah. the goal for Jota today, um, the Thiago play, even though he messed up, you know having opportunity to gel with the team in the other game. I feel like, you know, you can't always expect your new players to get the best experience right off bat, but it really goes a long way to kind of cement them and steal their nerves a little bit. That's not happening at Chelsea, and I don't know if it's because of the way that Lampard's approaching the new players, integrating them. I don't know if it's an inherited problem that he's still trying to, you know, handle, right? He, but it, it's I, I, I'll get, I, if I had to give a like a, a final say on the whole thing, I'll say this: I think you give them a little more time. I wouldn't throw them under the bus yet. I think that they still have it. Um, 
I think Lampard is the kind of guy that leads by principle, and I think that that's a really good thing for a team that's in distress because you don't want someone who's trying to just play mind games to get the right result. You want a guy who's got kind of a solid backbone to the way he approaches coaching and handling players because that's something you can actually rally around in the long run. Um, and I, I, my hope is that he can do that because I don't feel like the result was really his fault, uh, at least not in this particular game. Um, but, you know, in the long run, you know, you got to hope that he can get more out of those players no matter what their what their individual mistakes might be looking like because he's got the quality there to shape. I guess just maybe – I think in general I agree with you. Um, a couple of little things that I wrote down um, about this game that maybe point – in my mind, point a little bit more towards decisions that Frank made was mm. one, Thiago Silva last year played almost the whole season for PSG as a left sided center back, and today he's playing, or in that match, he's playing right sided center back. And I wonder if that makes him feel a little uncomfortable, makes him a little awkward in that play, you know, contributes toward that, towards that mistake. I also felt like as soon as Hudson Adoy came on for Kovacic, they looked much better. And as soon as Aspilicueta came on for Alonso, they looked so much better. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of an important moment in my mind when Aspilicueta comes on, he takes the captain's armband from Thiago Silva. And, you know, he's been the captain there for a while, and, and maybe that's like the expected thing, but you just kind of like need someone who's going to come into that game and be like, all right, yo, we need to take this game kind of by the balls right now and go for it. And right. Right. respect to Aspilicueta for really pushing the squad to do that. Yeah, I Callum Hudson Hudson Adoy. I really like that player, and I think that's a player who is going to have a really strong career. Maybe not at Chelsea, but man, he really, really brought some dynamism to that middle of the field, yeah. and especially the left. And exciting to watch. Yeah, um, I mean, we'll see if he learns. You know, that's my big thing. Like, let's see next week. You know, who does he start? Right? How does he approach the next game? Because maybe this is this is the lesson he needed. You know. I feel like I judge a person much more on whether they're willing to learn a lesson than whether they make a big mistake, you know, and maybe this was the mistake he needed to make. But yeah, the the, the jury's out, but 3-3, three, three, wow, what a game. What, what a, a game. game. Our next game, uh, maybe not the most exciting. Southampton 1, Burnley 0. You might have forgotten that this game had happened. I wouldn't blame you. Uh, <laughs> Danny Ings scores goals. That's just what he does. He scored a nice goal in the fifth minute to – get Southampton cooking, and then Southampton really defended very well. You know, Burnley is not a big attacking threat, but watching this game, I just felt like um, Southampton did a good job limiting the quality of chances that Burnley was able to get. Burnley only had two shots on target. And, yeah, Southampton is a team that is, I I view uh, under Ralph Hasselhudel as a team that really likes to attack and play a little bit more um, free-flowing offense, especially coming up the wings. And they were able to adjust in this game to, to, to sit back a little bit more and to absorb some pressure um, and to allow a Burnley team that doesn't really love having the ball a ton to kind of do that and be uncomfortable. And, and yeah, um, I think this is a quality three points for Southampton. And this is a little concerning. If I like looking at the standings, I know we're very early on, but Burnley is sitting down at the bottom of the table with zero points. And they've only played two matches. They're one game behind. But I, I'm kind of concerned because I, I think with Burnley, I've seen them 
be that squad that's really able to absorb a lot of pressure and play that really strong defensive block. And they've just looked a lot more shaky through the back of the field. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have a ton else on this game. I, it, it was pretty dull, and it just was really like Southampton showing some good adjustment that they've lacked in recent weeks, and it was good to see them having that strong defensive resolve because I think they could be a very exciting squad to be watching this season. I think that – so I I don't know that I can always explain why I like the teams that I do, but I really love Southampton. I love the way they play. It – Maybe it's just a it's very classic in my mind of a strategy the way they play there like four four two, um, and the the combination they have up top with Che Adams and Danny Ings is I I love it it like I said I think it scratches this kind of classic soccer style where Danny Ings is 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 dropping in uh, to make it more of like a four four one one shape when we're building out looking for the runs through the line. And, 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 and Che Adams is kind of playing ahead of him with a little bit more, you know, space to, to creating some depth for him, creating space for him to run into. And that combination play, I know it was early, um, but it was, it was a beautiful ball. And if you watch it again, if you watch that one play again, which I'm sure you can on the highlights easily, watch the way that that play uh, is created. It, there's a pass from the central defender to the outside defender. And, and, and for a moment, uh, long enough, I mean, soccer, a full second is, is a long time, but for a moment there, it feels like the pass is maybe a little short and the defender's like waiting for it to reach him. The midfielder from Burnley sees that, tries to jump on it, but of course the defender steps into the space, gets the ball first, and then there's that pocket right behind. They play into the pocket, there's enough time to hold and play the through ball, and then the pass back, and there's no way that that Adams can see that that Danny Ings is coming out of the back. There's no way. He's got the keeper siloing him off. He's got a defender essentially on his other side. And somehow he puts this like 12-degree ball backwards uh, to what he, you know, essentially has to pray is is his is his is his partner. And there he is, Danny Ings coming in with the touch. I thought it was a beautiful goal. I love the way they play. They play aggressive, and they really play as a team. I mean, they really, when they play defense, when they attack, like, everybody's doing it. You know, you watch them attack, and, they're, and they're, their formation is a 4-4-2, becomes quickly a 4-2-4 uh, with everybody kind of spreading the field wide. Um, I wish that I had watched Burnley more so I could have more to say about whether they're going to be down at the bottom for a long time or not, but honestly, I was all eyes for Southampton. Um, wasn't like an ex- exciting game by the terms of any other t- game we had here, where you know seven goals, uh, I think, was the most goals scored. But but for me, I think they're an exciting team to watch. I feel like they always have a, have a shot no matter who they're playing, so exciting in that way. I don't think I'm con- – I, I, I want to be clear. I don't think I'm necessarily concerned about Burnley like going down. But Burnley mm. has been like consistently very strong mid-table, sometimes even knocking on the door of Europe. And I think this season they just really haven't been able to spend the money and invest in that squad in the way that you would expect, get in the signings that they need to, to ratchet up and to compete. But um, yeah, uh, I, I think that's a, that's a good game to watch if you, if you want to see some nice defensive shift and adjustment of tactics to play well. Uh, our, our next game, we're going to another low-scoring game. Sheffield United 0, sad face. Leeds United 1. 
the man bun Jesus squad listened to our episode one and was like, all right, we're coming for that neck. Um, well, my blades. I, it, it really actually was not that. Uh, Leeds, this like amazing attacking team that's been banging in goals against teams like Liverpool, really kind of struggled against Sheffield. I thought Sheffield defended really well through this whole game. And the goal that they conceded was just this nice little interplay on the right side frees up this cross over the top to, to Patrick Bamford, who put, or sorry, on the left side with Jack Harrison. He makes this nice run and pings it over, and Patrick Bamford heads home the goal. I think it was in like the 88th or 89th minute, quite late. Yeah. And you could tell when I was watching that, I really felt some emotions of my time as a soccer player, very poor soccer player. But when I played defense, when you concede a late goal and it changes the result, it just – and you've just you, – like you've clearly put a shift in. It's so deflating. And you could see those Sheffield players just completely wilt. And I, my heart goes out to them because they had defended really well through that whole game. Um, I was like looking quickly at the shots and the chances that were created. And yeah, you know, Leeds had 17 shots to Sheffield United's 15. And kind of the, the main takeaway I had from this game is like, okay, Sheffield United is back to defending really well. Something that they hadn't been doing particularly well in the previous two games. And Sheffield United really badly needs a striker. And ironically, Callum Robinson was at Sheffield United last season, and now he's on West Brom knocking in these like amazing goals. He yeah. was conver- his conversion in that Chelsea game was nuts. And I'm like, man, if you had him in this squad, this game could have looked really different, and Sheffield's season moving forward looks different. There's some noise that Sheffield is trying to sign Balogun. He's an Arsenal youngster, mostly academy player. I think he's really talented, and I think he, he could be a great target man for them up front. But, um, yeah, thoughts on your blades? I'm going to be honest. I didn't wake up early enough to see the game live, and when I woke up to see the score was 1-0 leads, I I could never bring myself to watch it. I watched the, I watched the highlights uh, because I felt like I had to do it. But I take full responsibility for their loss. If I had gotten up early... I sat myself down in front of that TV and watched this game. I think they win it. I think that I'm the reason they're losing. I have yet to watch a full game live of theirs. I I just take full responsibility. I'm glad that you looked into the stats, found some hope for them, some some rays of sunshine. Uh, I'm glad to hear that their defending is is doing well because I think that's what they're going to need if they want to get back on the horse. Um, but at the same time, I'm not gonna. I can't go deeper than that. All I can say is I'm going to watch this next game no matter what time it is. Put put that on my – I'm writing a contract now with – I'll write one with Manchester United. If I don't, Manchester United is going to go on to win the rest of the league. That's my fate. That's my hand hand up. Uh, Deal with the devil. Deal with the devil devil themselves. Uh, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna watch the next one. And I think I think it's gonna turn around. That's what they need. They need me. It's my fault. I take responsibility. Next to cl- week. Clarify for our listener here. Rodrigo is on West Coast time. He's on Pacific time. So this is not like he's not able to wake up at seven in the morning. This is kind of on a different plane. So if you're getting up on your high horse right now, maybe get down on your low pony because it's not that big of a deal, y'all. Uh, uh, 
Speaking of getting taken down off your high horse, transitions, let's go. Tottenham won, Newcastle won. Oh my goodness, Spurs are back. Spurs are back to doing doing Spurs type things of old. In some ways, I I want to just say before we really get into this game that that has to be one of the most cruel handball calls I've ever seen in my life and I have every reason to want Spurs to draw this game. And I was like, that is absolute bullshit. Eric Dyer, for those who didn't watch, he gets up. He's going for a header. It comes off someone else. And he's he's in a heading position. Like, you, your arms are out towards your side. You're getting your head up. That's how you're supposed to head the ball as a defender. And the ball just kind of, like, pings off and hits his arm. And it gets called a, a penalty. And then... Uh, yeah, Newcastle converts Callum Wilson in the 97th minute. And I, if I'm a Spurs fan, it, it, I, I'd throw my hands up in despair watching that because that that was just such a terrible call. Okay, that being said, Spurs blew this game. Like, this is the kind of thing that happens in soccer. There are weird goals that happen in soccer they're like you, you can't just expect to have a 1-0 lead and and walk away with a win especially when you score your goal kind of early on uh Jose Mourinho had to pull Hung Min Sun off at halftime it seems like there's some kind of uh small injury to him and i think that changed the look of Tottenham's attack because they really did not uh yeah they 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 sat back a lot more in that second half and were making shots. They were putting shots on frame. They were creating some chances, but they just were not high quality enough. And they were not chances that seemed like they were ever serious to go in. Like I didn't watch a second of that second half and felt like, Oh, Tottenham is, is going to get a second goal and really kill this game off. And that's what you have to do. Like, especially with this new handball rule and how it's being policed. You just, you have to kill games off. And Jose Mourinho, after that penalty is called and Callum Wilson scores, the game is still going, and he's just turned around. He's already walking down the tunnel, and I was like, that is all-time iconic move, Jose Mourinho. Keeping up with Jose, episode three, still amazing. Um, Yeah, Tottenham, I think, is going to look a different team in a few weeks when they get Gareth Bale and Regulon really integrated into the squad. You know, um, it's it's going to feel different to see them. But, man, even as an Arsenal fan, I, I can't take any joy from that draw because that was just – it was awful. It's awful. I think I think one of the things – I mean, this this may just go hand-in-hand hand with all the stats we, we threw in the beginning. I don't think it's the sole uh, problem or, or part or element here, but the handball rule really has been – a key component of the number of goals and even some of these early goals that have been happening. Um, the handball rule for, for these PKs, I, it's, it's tough. I don't feel safe calling anything not a handball anymore. Um, you know, we've seen one, especially the ones that come about when a player is in a motion that has nothing to do with moving their arms, really, you know, like, like, like going for a header and having the ball deflect into your arm. I mean, I just, like you said, um, it's 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 not it's not what we want the spirit of the game 
that's it's not in line with the spirit of the game, and I don't think it's even what we want to see. You know, it's not even entertaining enough to compensate for anything. You know, some cheap pleasure out of it. I mean, it's 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 if anything, it's it's painful, and I think that that that's been a problem. Um, that I mean, it's just something that needs to be reevaluated. I totally agree, and we were talking about this kind of offline before the episode. And I wanted to to look into it because I was curious. It's been feeling like there's been so many penalties. Um, there's been 23 penalties in 28 Premier League games. That's coming out to be just shy of... It's about 0.8 penalties per match in the Premier League right now. Which, for you, listener, if you don't have any context... Going all the way back to 1992, to the start of the Premier League, the highest number we've ever had there has been 0.27. So this is like a ridiculous pace. And yes, it is a small sample size. You know, we've got a lot of games in the future and maybe the penalties will spread out. But it really does feel like it's killing off so many of these games and killing off the excitement of Tottenham deserve the win in this game. And they don't walk away with the win because of a rule that feels totally arbitrary and against the spirit of the game. So, um, Tottenham, I'm, I'm with you for this and this alone. So, enjoy <laughs> it while you got it. Take what you can get. Yeah. Um, we're actually going to move on to one of the weirder games. One of the games that really slipped under my radar. West Ham 4, Wolves 0. This is the debut of Nelson Semedo, a player who I think you and I both really rate coming from Barcelona. I think he's going to be an awesome piece for Wolves. He really loves playing in that wing-back role when they play three at the back. He really gets to have that attacking mindset. I think he got exposed at Barcelona as not being an amazing defender. And you might think that the scoreline suggests the same thing, like maybe Semedo is really getting targeted and that's what this was. And honestly, it wasn't. Like, when, when I rewatched this game um, this morning, because I didn't watch it live, pardon me, West Ham slash Wolves fans, uh, I just thought West Ham was really, really clinical in the chances that they created and really set up some very nice uh, interplay, particularly through Jared Bowen, to get the goals that they needed to win this game. Um, they didn't have a lot of the ball. They let Wolves play a lot of the ball, and this really spoke to, I think, what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is sort of how do you beat a team that plays a defensive block and really sits back, and Wolves tend to be that team. West Ham was like, we're just going to sit back deeper than you, and we're going to let you guys kind of have possession of the ball, and Wolves lose it in the middle of the field because it's not really what Wolves are about. And I think uh, Nuno was trying to have Wolves be this more – attacking-minded team to really go at West Ham because West Ham do sit real far back under David Moyes, and and he actually kind of just got pulled into their trap. And West Ham played that tactically, I thought, brilliantly. Um, I didn't think anyone on West Ham really stood out as being like an amazing performer, and this was like individual brilliance. I thought Jared Bowen was really solid, um, and I, I thought Declan Rice was, as always, really consistent and good. But... Um, yeah, I I think this this scoreline looks really bad for Wolves, and this is a bad loss to to have happen to a team like West Ham. But I think that in some ways West Ham just tactically was set up to 
to really exploit the tactics that Wolves brought. And, and Wolves just looked uncomfortable in the way that they were trying to play. Um, any think, thoughts about the Wolves? Oh, absolutely. So I, I thought the game was kind of, um, it seemed a little chaotic in the midfield. It seemed like a lot of the game, and especially in the first half, I felt like was just kind of just a constant battle in the midfield. Both teams kind of trying to assert some some control over essentially who who owned that part of the field. And I think in the end, um, it it. it it was weird the way I the way I tried to explain because I was trying to explain to myself how is Wolf struggling so much? It seems like they're getting countered relentlessly, but I mean they're also not. I mean they're kind of trying to press. Uh, there is this is the press being extremely unsuccessful? Um, you know what's going on with the Wolves team? I think there are a few things. One, uh, when once once. Once the Hammers had the ball, they they had no you know they had no goal to go through the middle. I mean they sent long balls down to Antonio, who I think did a great job in this game playing as their as their target man. I mean he got onto a lot of through balls that they sent out of the back and made Wolves run. I mean just made them run, you know, all the way back to try to defend that and and really provided a lot. I feel like in terms of keeping Wolves having to transition back. And I think over time, what you kind of see is that when you're set low, but you keep having to run back, it kind of spreads your team out, which is just not really how you want to be. And the midfield line, I think, in this game ends up sitting a little too high. They end up sitting, I don't know, I want to say, like, I want to see a heat map for where they were, but I feel like they were sitting anywhere between 5 to 10 yards outside of the opposing 18. And they weren't good enough on the press. Honestly, the sense of urgency sometimes seemed like they just couldn't execute fast enough on the press. They weren't fast enough at the press to make that worth their time. And so they were these big gaps. I mean, I feel like every time they send a long ball over the top to Antonio, you'd see this, you know, 10, 20 yard gap between the midfield line and the defenders, which when you're playing 3 4 3 is a big problem. You want to stay compact kind of everywhere you go. Um, as you getting attacked, you're going to sit maybe so deep that you're a five, four, one, a la the hammers. Uh, but when you go to the attack, you really want to have those wing backs coming up and then engaging on the attack. I think that they really, I think that they had this ended up kind of getting stretched in the midfield in a way that just didn't suit the play and the space got taken advantage of, um, over the top, you know, shout out to Samato. I don't think he played that well this game. I, I mean, you know, it's his first game. It's a transition for sure. I mean, especially even at Barcelona. I mean, I don't know what kind of trauma he might have experienced there from trying to, to trying to play with that with the with the group as it was. But um, I don't think he played his best game. I'm a little nervous about what he will be able to provide um, this team. I feel like he, you know, maybe I'm jumping to conclusions, but I, I feel in some ways like he might not be a good fit for this team for some reason. He just didn't really seem to have a lot of chemistry to connect and see the like what what was trying to get done. That said, Wolves as a whole, I think, was a little lost. So maybe it's really not his fault uh, entirely. But he seemed out of place. Seemed like he was struggling. Um, I hope that he he turns it around. But but I wasn't I wasn't super confident about that seeing seeing the performance uh, uh, this weekend. I I also think. I know it sounds kind of weird, but in some ways, I think Traore was playing a little too far up for Wolves, and I've kind of liked him playing almost as like a wing back a little bit more, and because he is a really solid 
defender in like yeah. that he can get he can really disrupt play and be very physical and like stop the buildup of play. Right. And he's so fast, like even if he's further back, he's just gonna beat people in a foot race. And and I, I, I heard some other people saying this that feeling like him pushing up so far is is almost like a misfit for him because yeah, he's like who's that superhero who was just like really big and he had like the metal helmet um, the, did, was it the juggernaut the juggernaut the, that's exactly juggernaut. who it is yes yeah. and like the juggernaut needs a lot of room to run and then he like is smashing through like everything right right Chari is kind of a juggernaut like give he that is, man his runway and then brick right. walls it's not stopping um you know it reminds me of a thing that my dad uh said to me one time about about style of play and choosing your style of play and, and how you execute and it was about how you know, you see some teams that really do better when they sit back and they counter, um, and then you see them go against other teams that, you know, maybe they feel like they should have an advantage of, you know, because, you know, they didn't play as well last year or were strong or whatever it is, and they try to play a different style, a little more aggressive, maybe they're not trying to counter anymore, and they struggle sometimes. I think we've seen this quite a few times, and it harkens back, I think, to our last episode. Uh, my dad always told me, he's like, you know, some players, he was talking about chess, he said, some players only play well with black. Uh, and if you, for all the those who don't play chess, uh, you know, white always moves first. And so the general consensus is that if you're playing the white pieces, you know, you have an advantage because you start in the attack. Yeah. But there are just some people that don't do well with whites and would do better to just leave them alone. When given the choice, choose choose your blacks. Um, Because the thing is, if you sit deeper, um, you create that space for Triore. I think you're probably less vulnerable um, you don't have those those Antonio runs coming in behind, um, and and I think you you both negate some of their opportunities, but you also open up some space for your own. Um, so, mm. I think I think we're seeing that in a few different places, uh, and and I think that's something that you got to be you know keeping keeping in mind when you're playing your opponent. I want to move on to our next game. We're looking at Aston Villa three, Fulham zero. That game happened this afternoon. A really strong performance from Aston Villa. Quietly undefeated Aston Villa, who's conceded zero goals across two games. Very small sample size. And they played Fulham and Sheffield United, who was on a red card. So maybe not a whole lot to take away from there. But I actually feel like Aston Villa has quietly invested really well in their squad in this transfer window and is setting themselves up to be you know, like a mid-table, kind of like Newcastle 10, 11, 12 range type team, which is great for the stability of a really historic club in the Premier League. Um, They brought in Emiliano Martinez from Arsenal, Arsenal's backup keeper, who was excellent in the conclusion of last season for Arsenal. Uh, And they've brought in Bertrand Traore, who has yet to feature for them, I believe. He's a right winger. And Ollie Watkins from Brentford was kind of their bigger signing as a center forward, which was sort of their problem last year. They had some trouble setting up and converting goals. And I thought Ollie Watkins in this game, to be honest, wasn't great. He he had some heavy touches. and Yeah, he, he seemed like he was still gelling with the team and kind of figuring it out. Uh, that being said, I thought that Aston Villa played really well. And the score sheet reflects that and it reflects it accurately because they were just much the better team um fulham i'm concerned 
again about Fulham as we continue on. I just feel like Scott Parker has them trying to play this possession-heavy soccer, and it just does not work with the personnel that they have. Like, in my mind, what Fulham should be doing is they should be kind of sitting back, maybe trying to hit some counter, and really just relying on set pieces and feeding Mitrovic in the middle to just body center backs and, you know, get kind of a shithouse goal. And I, I see Fulham to trying to play this a much more like fluid, attacking, possession, little like tiki tack kind of soccer. And it, it just it, it maybe it would work with that personnel in the championship, but they're just not strong enough and uh, not accurate enough in their passing and their play to really be able to do that effectively at this level. Um, Jack Grealish is also phenomenal. He's, he is a very good soccer player and I know he kind of can disappear in some of the bigger games, but something that really jumped out to me in this game was smart fouling. Jack Grealish just made some really intelligent fouls to kind of break down Fulham attack in critical moments. And, that's not something I always associate with his play. I associate him much more as like the guy who's getting fouled all the time. Um, but yeah, I thought this was a good good game for Aston Villa and and they're a side who, you know, they're not challenging for any top spot. But like I said, I think they're going to be pretty solid. Any thoughts on Aston Villa or struggling Fulham? Oh well, don't things look bleak for Fulham? Um, I'll say this about Mitrovic. I also, I, I, I haven't seen a lot from that guy that makes me feel like he's a problem solver for them. Um, I, yeah, I, I think, I think, I think like this is the time when I want to put down maybe more serious money on Fulham getting, getting relegated. It seems early. So I want to take the odds while they're here, you know? Um, but I think this is the time where I feel like, yeah, I don't know, you know, who, who else are they going to play that I'm going to expect them to be able to, to beat. It's kind of how I would think of it. Like, who do I think they can win against? And, you know, Leeds has proven itself to be dangerous in its way. So, you know, you can't, you can't say that they're, you know, quite the, the, the man to be, they've already lost that game once, you know, I don't see a lot of other teams, maybe, maybe a West Brom. You know, uh, maybe, you know, a fluke win here and there, but I just, I struggle to see them being really competitive against really many other teams that they've, and they feel like they've already, they've already had their chances, so to speak. Um, Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. Hard to see where the points are going to come for Scott Parker um, and Fulham. And it is kind of sad because Fulham does have an American defender in Tim Ream. And man, he did not look great in this game and er, that's not great because um u.s men's national team desperately needs some competent defenders um they also have anthony robinson though who is continuing this full america tradition um and he is he is a talented american defender i believe he plays right back so maybe we'll get to see him feature a little bit more for them um in the future our last game before the break, uh, Monday Night Football in the UK, Liverpool 3, Arsenal 1. Uh, mm. I want to maybe let you kick it off. I, I, I'm very curious to hear how you were viewing this game and thinking about it because I had a very emotional reaction and I want to 
maybe try to scale that back a little bit. <laughs> therapy here. Therapy. Working on it. Take a knee real quick, Duffy. I'll take it from here. Uh, Liverpool Arsenal. Liverpool coming away with the 3-1 win. I got to say, though, that if you look at the game as a whole, it didn't necessarily feel like it was 3-1 the whole time. Things felt, I think, fairly even for a good chunk of the game. Even even when Liverpool was up 2-1, Arsenal had a chance here and there that, you know, really credit to Allison for a couple nice saves. Um, you know, we we did have a, you know, a bad mistake uh, that led to that Arsenal goal. So, you know, maybe it wasn't, I don't want to say it was all just Liverpool making mistakes, but it was close. It was definitely close for a little while. Um, I remember feeling like watching the game, hey, we're up, you know, Liverpool's up 2-1. Uh, you know, looking down, watching them play for a little while, forgetting it was 2-1 and thinking, oh, this game must be all wrapped up, only to realize, oh, wait, you know, we're only one goal away, and, and Arsenal's got the ball right now in the other third. So it definitely was tighter than the, than the score might might tell. Um, that said, the thing that impressed me the most about this game, and I think you pointed out, um, but I think is almost a bigger deal than, than maybe people would notice at first glance, is that Liverpool did not come out pressing Arsenal like crazy. To me... Um, this is the opposite of that case. I said they chose the blacks. They said, you know what? We know Arsenal's strength is in the counter. We don't need to, you know, especially the beginning of a game, the first five minutes, ten minutes of the game. That's usually when players are settling, even if they settle quickly. That's usually when people are kind of settling, getting into the rhythm of the game. It always takes a few minutes, you know, for things to really flesh out what it's going to be like. And it feels like Liverpool sits a little deeper in the beginning of this game, and denies that space. And I don't know that I feel strongly strongly about this defensive tactic, but Arteta has them coming up and pressing, um, you know, which, you know, in the end does, you know, it causes them a little trouble here and there. Um, but they end up getting Arsenal to press them, which to me is the most ineffective you could make Arsenal when it comes to their transition to attack. Um especially against a Liverpool team that I think I have pretty high expectations can not only play out of the back, but could also send a long bomb, long bomb to, to punish you. Right. Uh, I feel like they get Arsenal to play the game they want them to and then use that time to really ramp up their rhythm. And as the half progresses, I think you see Arsenal uh, start to be in a little more and more vulnerable position. Um, the The goals themselves, you know... Uh, the goal for you know the the, the first mistake uh, by by Andy Robertson you know he deflects a ball kind of more than he really he hits it uh, backwards um, to Lacazette puts that in that was not necessarily an easy shot to make it wasn't a beautiful shot that he was able to get off of it either but it's still kind of an impressive thing to me I mean turning 180 with the ball in the air and trying to hit that is is not an easy feat. Um, and he and he gets it to go. Uh, in a way, I feel like the the way he gets it to balance is exactly what he needs. It brings it brings Allison down to the ground, and then it has just enough height to get over the top. So I think still an impressive effort there to finish that. Um, and then you know we kind of see classic Liverpool come back. They have I think really like I think I mentioned this earlier, kind of pointed ways to attack. You know they have and they have a few different options that they're able to. To put into play so you see the of course the wingbacks coming up into the wide spaces for the cross but they don't just send crosses from the from the from the touchline they're sending crosses 
early, so to speak, you know, outside the 18, maybe, you know, more like 20 to 30 yards out uh, on the right-hand side, sending those into the box. And every time they're sending in those balls, they're dangerous, dangerous balls coming in that people can put a head on. That's one. Two, they've got, you know, uh, Salah and Mane, you know, uh, essentially a right footer on the left and a left footer on the right. Of course, they're going to be cutting in, driving in, looking for space to to, to exploit. Uh, if not, you know, if, if it, and if they're able to draw a defender or two, cross that ball in the back, I think you see, what, maybe three chances uh, for a late sub, um, Diogo Jota, uh, that he wasn't able to put away all of them. Finally gets one off of the deflection that he's able to put away at the top of the 18. But, you know, those chances are created because when you have the ability to cross the ball, defenders have to step to you. And then when you have uh, someone like, you know, Salah dribbling across the top of the 18 with his left ready to fire... All those defenders are sucked into that space because whether it's the cross that they need to defend or the man coming into the box, they're they're in trouble and they know it. And that just leaves that space in the back, which, you know, if if not, if not Jota, then then Mane is able to exploit. Um, not and and then just on top of all of that, they can shoot from the outside. So you know, it's it, they're a dangerous team to play against and I thought that it was both out of respect to Arsenal that they sat a little deep in the beginning um, but also I think credit to Jurgen Klopp for not for not letting anything get to his head doesn't matter what your name is on paper every game starts 0-0 he knew that he needed to kind of ease into this game and I think they do a good job doing that Um, this is not the game that I expect Arsenal to win Um, it was perhaps a good experience for them to learn and build from I, I think that they still have uh, some potential there to, to do some damage to teams, and I just question of how, of how far they'll be able to make that, that go for them. Um, what do you think? I think that's very well said. I really struggle when watching Arsenal play to really take a lot away from the other team. I'm so focused on Arsenal, and I think it's, it, it's easy for me to neglect the fact that, hey, Liverpool, like, this is a really quality squad, and they're champions last year for a reason and they they look to be the class of the league again um uh yeah i think that you know arsenal beat liverpool in the league at the end of last season uh, a defeat that kind of stopped liverpool from getting up to 100 points and then they beat them also in the fa cup in the semi-final um so that you know th- this this team or is that right they beat them in the uh, community shield that's the game that i was thinking of sorry like arsenal has beaten liverpool in recent memory like this is uh two two managers who faced off and arsenal beat them by sitting back and playing over the top and liverpool just kind of sat their defensive line a little bit further back and was like you know we're, we're not going to pull the offsides trap here just like you said and mm-hmm. arsenal struggled and they struggled playing out of the back um I'm concerned. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm concerned about Nicholas Pepe. I thought he he would really kind of come into his own, and I really want him to start because I think that's going to be huge for his confidence. But he was poor in the time that he had today, uh, even corner kicks. Like Arsenal had two corner kicks down the stretch, and he couldn't even get them over the first man. Um, that's alarming for a club record signing, to say the least. Uh I thought Arsenal played decently in the second half. 
I am also, though, very concerned by how little Aubameyang was involved in this game at all. And I didn't I think agree. that was his fault. I didn't think he was doing anything necessarily wrong. But he is one of the better, maybe one of the best players in the Premier League. And he cannot be that star for service if you want to win. You know, I've seen some, I see some fans on Twitter talking about how, like, the game is really different if Lacazette converts that chance. You know, Ceballos gets this really nice ball through and like the I think it's like the sixty-third yes. minute, and yes. Lacazette just hits Beautiful. it right at Allison. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, he scores that it's two two, but and, and you know, maybe we, we pull out the draw and and that's solid. Um I just I think I, I, I'm struggling in general watching Arsenal create so little and that's just not the club that I'm at all familiar with as a fan. Like I'm very used to watching Arsenal shell in whatever Looney Tunes goals and, and make defensive mistakes, but also be this really fluid attacking team that creates a ton of chances and puts a lot of shots on net. And in this game, we had four shots, three of them on target in the first half, two touches in the opposition 18. Like this Mm -hmm. is like sort of getting to be Burnley ball. And I don't want to overreact too much because it is Liverpool. This is a really good team. Arsenal still has some pieces getting integrated and figured out and probably some more transfer movement in this last week. But um, yeah, I I think I I just, it is kind of hard to watch Arsenal play this way. And maybe it is the best way for them to play tactically. And it did feel like there were some chances here, but um, part of me really wants Arsenal to just be like, let's, you know, let's go for it. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. thing before we leave, I just want to re- come back to is I just I think the biggest I, I don't want to call it a mistake, but I think it's the thing that I would change. And, and, and like I just want to be clear, you know, I know so much less about what's going on in the squad, and I don't see them at practice, you know, the way that Arteta does. So I, I don't want to say that I know better than he does, but from the very little that I do know, a lot from watching them. I think it's I think it's a poor use of his players to press. He's got fast players. I just don't think that that's the best use of their energy. I don't think it's the best use of space. I would much rather see Arsenal set up with their line at the at at, at midfield, right? Let the other team approach midfield because even if you want to start pressing there in that space, if you win the ball, you don't really have to win the ball with any kind of precision. You win the ball and immediately just kick it to the corner and let Aubameyang run onto it. It's not beautiful, but it at least gives you more from the press. If you win the pressed ball up top, sure, if you win it in the 18, great. You've got a shot on goal. The likelihood you're going to win that from a team like Liverpool seems slight. And if you did it for any and anywhere else on the field, you win the ball, but there's nowhere to run with it. You know, yeah. you, you win on the right side. Now you got to turn and try to go inside, and that, that's plenty of time for the transition. If you win that ball at half field, on the other hand, that means a lot more, especially for a team uh, that, like, 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 like uh, Arsenal's. Someone, I think it was one of, one, of the, one of the people watching the game, one of the commenters, uh, commentators was, was talking about Maitland Niles being Maitland Miles for all of the distance he was putting in. And I couldn't agree more, but why are we spending that energy pressing the ball on their own 18? It, it, I just think that's, I think that's silly. Um, I think you, I think, I think that you, 
it seems like one team always is is just deciding, hey, you know what, I'm going to treat this game, you know, with a little bit of, cons- I'm going to treat it a little conservatively, and I'm going to let the other team come. And it seems like the other team is never thinking about it in these games. Like, we, I never see a standoff with one team trying to, you know, seduce the other team into their half, and then the opposite. It seems like if, if one team gives it, the other team is just ripe to just go bite it. Um, and I, I think that was a mistake um, that Arteta should really just, should just avoid. I think it's just something you can completely avoid. We're going to set up at half field every time we lose the ball. Why? Because we want the space for our boys to run into. Like it's a simple plan, but I think it would, would give them a lot more a lot more room to work with. I, I like that. I I guess my, my last note is just something that does feel distinctly different about this game that it did last year, or even the year before. Similar scoreline, I think. I think they actually lost last time, maybe three 0 I. I at, at Anfield, I can't remember, but I went into this game feeling some like optimism that Arsenal could pull out a result, like maybe a draw, and I haven't felt that way about them playing Liverpool in a while, and that to me feels like some progress. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting let down. That's kind of the, <laughs> the conclusion, um, hence Ooh. therapy part one of many this week, but, but like I will say that... I, I have more confidence in Arteta and just being able to grind out some games. Um, We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the game of the week, Manchester City versus Leicester. Okay, welcome back. I made a mistake up at the top of the show, Rodrigo, and I just wanted to clear, offer this out. You obviously, listener, have noticed we've got a new song. So shout out my boy Diego hitting us up and just dropping some absolute heat for us. We really appreciate heat. it. I think Fire. it fits the vibe more, right? Yes. I listen to it before the show begins on my own. I get it just ripping in my head. gets me focused. Ugh, it's it's great. I love it. So, yeah, thank you, Diego. Um I think that will be our, our track moving forward. Moving on to this game, uh, Leicester 5, Manchester City 2. Insane. This was an absolutely wild game. Jamie Vardy coming out party times a million. He was incredible in this game. I kind of I, I want to start just giving a quick rundown of the goals, and then I, we, we've got to dig dig a little bit into the tactics and um, yeah, talk about the bald fraud, Pep Guardiola. So (laughs) this game started off with absolute heat from Manchester city and a ball off of a set piece gets kind of pinged out to Riyad Mahrez and he rips a goal with his right foot is a left footed player crazy and just absolutely smashes it into the top corner. Amazing goal from him. Game progressed. That that also happened in the sixth minute. Sorry, I should have clarified the timing on that. Yeah, so early. Um, City have another chance. They get in a really nice ball from KDB, and Rodri heads it home, but it was offsides. And almost immediately after that offsides call, that was in the 35th minute, 36th minute, Kyle Walker pulls back Jamie Vardy's shoulder. It's a really light touch. Vardy goes down, penalty, and then Vardy converts ice cold. Uh, the game goes into half being 1-1, and then Leicester really come out swinging in the second half. 
Vardy scores this goal in the 54th minute off of a pass from Castagne. Castagne? Castagne. No idea how to say that. Um, great little flick. We got to come back to that. Vardy then again beats Eric Garcia this time and gets tripped up to win a penalty. Um, and he converts the penalty again to complete a hat trick for him. That's in the 57th minute. So two goals in the span of three minutes. James Madison comes on, rips a screamer in the 76th minute. And this is a a really sweet moment that I didn't notice the first time I watched this game. But he he doesn't celebrate with the team. He runs over to the sideline, and he gets a shirt thrown to him. It's a white shirt, and he holds it up. And you couldn't really see it on the broadcast, but I looked it up after, and it has a picture of the the lesser team doctor, Stuart Burtwistle, who – had been the club doctor for a long time, and he passed away in June from cancer and was someone who Madison was pretty close to and had worked with a lot. Um, and I thought that was a very nice tribute for a really like all-time world-class goal from James Madison. Um, and then uh, another there, there's a, a, another set-piece goal for Manchester City, Nathan Ake off a corner with a nice header. And... Then James Madison beats Benjamin Mendy in the 87th minute for another penalty, and Tielemans converts. So that's three penalties to Leicester, two set-piece goals, basically, for Manchester City, and then two worldies for uh, for Leicester. This was a nuts game. Um, I wow. have been discounting Leicester a lot, and I've been very critical of them. To be fair to myself, I also said that Leicester's going to start really hot and they'll cool down. And they are starting really hot. They just haven't hit, hit <laughs> sorry, January cool yet <laughs> to prove that I'm right about them cooling down. Um, I thought City was so dominant in the first 30 minutes of this game. I, they were just felt like they were really controlling the ball, really controlling the tempo of the game, not really allowing Leicester to, to work into the game at all. That was my initial reaction. And then I sort of was, as I was rewatching it this after, afternoon and looking at it a little bit more closely, I was like, I think Leicester's just kind of letting them do that. Like, Leicester is, I saw a 5-4-1 defensively. Five at the back, four midfielders, like not even 10 yards in front of them. And then Jamie Vardy, like 10 yards in front of the midfielders. Yep. So I think that, Brendan Rodgers just really played, like, managed this game super well and had this really deep defensive block that City just couldn't couldn't really break down. What were you thinking about this game, um, especially tactically? How, how were you viewing this game between two good sides? Yeah. This was a really fun game to watch. Uh, if you have to go back and watch a single game um, – the only reason the the Brighton one uh, isn't isn't in contention is because it's so heartbreaking. You don't want to see that. Uh, but this this game is the game to watch. I mean, it's exciting. There are some, like you said, world class goals. I mean, the strike from Madison, the flick by Jamie Vardy, nasty. I mean, what a nasty flick. And I mean, and that's the kind of thing I I I expect from Jamie Vardy too to do the thing that will work no matter how crazy it might sound because he doesn't care about anything other than scoring goals. Um, this game was exciting to watch. I would I would uh, I would try to weave together the two pieces you framed at the beginning that City was playing a good game with a lot of control and that 
uh, Lester were letting them do it. I would try to weave that together a little bit to say this. When you have the ball, right, it, it doesn't mean anything unless you're being dangerous. It doesn't mean – all it means is time, that you're spending time, right? And, and, and if that's what it means, then it doesn't matter if you have the ball or they do, right? If you're not being dangerous, then you're, you're, there's, you're not doing anything valuable with the ball. If you go back and watch this game, look at every time that City is dangerous, right? What are the times that City is dangerous? They are dangerous from set pieces, both of their goals come from set pieces. Um, they are dangerous from crosses into the box served up by KDB, which, at least in those scenarios, is a lot like a free kick, right? Given open space to send a deep ball into the box. Um, we have a header that's disallowed because of offsides, right? So I don't think it's that you know they can't score, but let's just think about that. Those are the ways they're being dangerous. And yet, so much time is spent possessing the ball in this shape that even though they line up as I think like a 4-2-3-1 right with KDB at the center of that three you know kind of like a a forward underneath or a playmaking 10 depending on how you want to think about the role you really end up shifting he has Mendy go super high into essentially the attacking line and he creates this like 3-2-5 where each defender on that five-person defense for Leicester has a person to mark, right? And none of that, not none, I always want to say none, but so little of that time feels dangerous. When they try to combine and go through the middle, Leicester has an answer. And maybe that's just because they're decent at defending, right? I mean, give them credit for that. Uh, Maybe you don't have the individual talent to just break that defense down 1v1. You might not. Um, Defending is not about creating things. It's about negating things. And when you're sitting that tight in your own box and and you've been preparing for this game and the person you're going to mark, I mean... I'm not so sure that you can say that you can, that you can lean on your players to get that to just be better than that Leicester defense. I, I just don't know if you can. Now, I think that this is a real challenge to Pep Guardiola's current style of play. We see the exact same kind of style of play. I want to remind you of our listener against the Lyon team in the Champions League. That, uh, you know, I don't know that we have an episode about, but I remember us talking about it. I felt the exact same way about they were sitting super high, killing all the space behind the other team. And maybe, you know, like to their credit, maybe they can cut through the middle, right? Maybe that is what they're really good at. Playing combination play, just, you know, moving the ball into midfield, looking for the tiny crevices in between. But it doesn't mean that you can rely, you can't rely on one form of scoring all the time. You just can't. Uh, if another team, especially if you're Man City, if another team's coming to play you, they've already read that they've they've seen you play that style. They know how you can do it. They know what you have. They're going to be prepared. And with the amount of money they're spending, the players they have, Pep Guardiola at the helm, this is not an insolvable problem. You know, just try another solution. And I think that the solution's pretty clear. KDB should not be playing that high. You are wasting all of the room that he could have if he sat farther back to send balls into the box, which I think by definition in this game are the way that they score goals. They're scoring goals when KDB has the space to put these like homing missile of crosses into the, into the six-yard box with people running onto it. 
And the thing is, you only need to be dangerous from one place to start to open up other recesses in the game. Sit KDB back, have him send those balls in, and what is Leicester going to have to do? They're going to have to step up a little bit to stop letting KDB get these free balls into their 18. When that opens up, there's either space between the lines or the other defensive line has to step up, and that creates more space that you need. I just don't know why we're using him so high. I get that he can also play the one-two ball and find a shot from the top of the 18, but when you're lining up against another team and then their lineup is 5-4-1, with the one Vardy, to his credit, so deep that sometimes it's essentially a 5-5 with a little dimple in the middle of it, (laughs) you know, there's no reason to be setting five of your players in between two other lines of five. Um, I wrote this down in my notes and, you know, I don't know, uh, I don't know if I was just like drunk with emotion at the time, but I wrote this down on my notes about Guardiola's, uh, city. I want to say this. Guardiola is missing his messy right now. What he's doing would work if he had a player that was so much better than the other players around him that when he got the ball in a one-on-one situation, he was always drawing two defenders. If you had a player like that... Are you saying that Raheem Sterling is not Lionel Messi? Is that what you're suggesting? Oh, no way. There's only one magician. There's only one magician. No matter how old he gets, no matter how tired he might be of the players around him, he's a true magician. And the thing is, that's, that's that's what they pay him the big bucks to do. And with and with Sterling and these other players they have, they're excellent players, but they're still human. And when you're setting them up with very close quarters and a ton of defenders around them, it's going to be really challenging, especially a team that has good defenders. I mean, Leicester is not is not a bad defensive team. They're not. Um, and of course, of course. What you are going to pay for if you decide to play a game like that is so much space behind you. Yeah. With Jamie Vardy, like one of the fastest players, and honestly, one of those players too that can finish at that top speed. Not only can he run that fast, but he can finish dribbling with the ball at that speed. Um, I mean, I don't know why you'd ever want to give them that. This to me is a good example of where, like, Guardiola and Klopp to me like like Pep Guardiola loses touch and Jurgen Klopp doesn't. Jurgen Klopp sees an Arsenal, a team that maybe he shouldn't give as much respect as he does, but decides to sit a little bit and ease his players in. He understands yeah. his players are human. Pep Guardiola is like, you know what? I know that this is this is this is how we do it. We have our plan. Let's attack. And everything they try to do seems very stifled in the end by Leicester. They have their chances, but like I said, they come from things that remind me or are, are literally set pieces. Um, and that's not, that's not a bad thing. You just need to create more opportunities that look like that. Um, and if you start to do that, things will open up. They always do. When you're dangerous in one place, people have to cover for it, and they trade something off in the mix. Um, Leicester, I think, to their, to their credit, are... They, I think they're ready to take the league. They are. Um, Leicester and Liverpool, to me, I mean, granted, I don't know if they'll have that, uh, you know, shooting star, uh, uh, you know, path into the future and disappear, cooling off in the later half of, of January. But if Leicester is able to keep this up, I'm telling you, that's going to be, that's the game that I really want to see, Liverpool versus Leicester. Because Leicester, Leicester can press, 
They can step up. They can press high. They can also sit back. They have the counter. They have shots from outside. I think that they have an absolute wonderful playmaker in Barnes. Barnes has real chemistry with Vardy and can send a nice ball, can shoot, um, and, and is humble about his place and his role. I think that the two of them are a great pairing. Um, they can stay healthy and they can keep playing like they do, and they're and they're you know they're they're cautious about how they approach. Then I think they're really gonna blow some teams out of the water. Um, Madison, he just puts the cherry on top with that laser. I, I mean, you ah. Uh. I really like the way that Leicester's playing as well. I think my concern with them, unlike a squad like Liverpool, is if Jamie Vardy gets hurt, then I, I would be very concerned about how Leicester would play. Just I think Ian Nacho is their backup striker, and I think he's a really solid player. Jamie Vardy's intelligence in the in the runs that he made in this game was really sensational. Like. He is so fast, but something that I noticed in this game is that he's so judicious in the times when he decides to make his runs that he's not sprinting the whole game. And this is kind of like what you were talking about with Arsenal, how like the front line was pressing so much, they're just getting gas running around the pitch. Vardy is positionally aware, you know, he's jogging through, but then when he makes his runs, his runs are, are so fast and so targeted and so well-timed, um, he only has to make a few and, and he converts them really well. And Ian Nacho just doesn't have that ability. I think few players do. So, you know, you, I, I guess I kind of worry about how much stock you can put into a 33-year-old who to, to carry your team and stay healthy. Um, I would love Fair to see enough. continue on. I, I think thinking about what you were saying about KDB playing up so high, I thought Raheem Sterling was terrible in this game, but he was playing out of position. Like, he was playing in the middle of the field, and – Manchester City desperately need Kunaguero back. They really need that player up in the front who can be a striker in like the true sense. And they're trying to play these set pieces because they didn't really have that. And then in the in the midfield, you know, Fernandinho and Rodri are, I would say they're like six point five. Like they're not quite a six. They're they're getting closer to being an eight in the role that they play but they both kind of like to sit a little bit further back. And like, those are not guys who are really like David Silva, who can be like that eight that's flowing up the pitch and doing the little interplay pass you talk about. And I, I think this squad just had some weird inconsistencies and in not really having that like other central attacking midfielder who can play with De Bruyne and allow De Bruyne to slide back a little bit. Cause I totally agree with you that he just seemed too far up the pitch. Also, yeah. Eric Garcia really had a tough game today. You know, he made some mistakes in at center back, but City has Americ Laporte, who's on the bench coming back from an injury. And I think as of today, they have purchased Ruben Diaz from Benfica, who's an amazing center back from everything I've read about him. I haven't really seen much play. That being said, like loading up on center backs, you know, it seems attractive because you see like Van Dyke really changes Liverpool. It's great. But Kyle Walker and Benjamin Mendy felt like the weak links in the defense. They both conceded penalties in this game. They both had some nice play going forward to help, you know, get in some crosses and play that sort of uh, attacking from the side. But I was like, I would want more depth at my left back and my right back position. I've got Laporte coming back. I'm, I'm not as concerned about CB, but yeah. So I, I guess just some kind of like weird squad construction and then, 
yeah, Pep Guardiola just not really taking this game. I, I don't want to say not taking it seriously, but it did feel like there was just a, a lack of uh, creativity, a lack of dimension to the the way the city was thinking about this game, and a really limited um, a, a limited view towards how they were going to play. And and they mm. like you said, you know, they got exposed. Yeah, um, I felt like he was forcing it. That's the thing. I felt like he was forcing it. I feel like he had an idea. And he was trying to make it work, and it, and it, it was just, it was a force. I, I just, I can't let City off the hook with this idea that they don't have the personnel. Like that's just, it's, it's silly to me. They have plenty of great players on the field as during the whole game. I mean, if if you not having Aguero means that you can't be successful then I I beg you to look at any of the other teams that have like one or two sole strikers, a Zaha, that they they understand that they're going to need to change shape uh, to try to make the most of the player that they have. They may only have maybe one or two that can really make a big difference. Here, with so many great players, maybe you're not paying attention, but you could still have a priority, right? Like you can't just, you, you know, KDB, I think, is the player you need to build this team around. The ball should be in his feet, and he should be making play making. He should be in a playmaking position at all times. If that space isn't going to be provided to you it, it, outside of the eighteen, as nice as that would be, then sit him a little deeper. I, I and 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 honestly, Nathan Ake for, for also played a great game. I thought great. he was great I at center he was back. Excellent today. Excellent. He was fierce. He was like fierce on the ball. Tackled hard. He scored the goal. He never showed any sign of stopping. Um, I thought he was a really great player to have there. Um, the outside players, yeah, like you know, they like Walker had the had the foul, but those those penalty kicks were earned. I mean, those balls through were dangerous. Um, they were in transition. Vardy was gonna Vardy was gonna finish the first one, and the second one, Vardy was able to slip into the space with his speed. I mean, both of those were earned. He put his body in the position to between him and the other player in the ball and was and was in a position to score um so whether purposeful or not you know i think he earned them um i think it's i think it's really a matter of being more dangerous than the other team and making the most of what you have uh if you're going to play so high and have possession as much of the game then what you're giving up is the counter against a team that's extremely good at countering they're going to score you're not going to stop them from scoring everything you need to score more goals <laughs> from things that aren't set pieces uh and and i think i think somewhere in between there you either change up your strategy take away neutralize that threat for the space behind or at the very least maximize the value of of a player like KDB who's the only one making you feel dangerous that's what I, that's that's what i have to say about that I think Pep Guardiola should have listened to episode two of our show. He would have had some good insight on how to break down the defensive block. I'd be so afraid to sit down with Pep Guardiola and tell him <laughs> anything I just said. I'd be like, yeah, no, I think you're doing great. You're just doing really good. Dude, keep it up. I think you're going great. Um, I'll just, I love it. Can I sit on the bench maybe? Just hang out? Watch. I, I'd probably call him dad <laughs> by mistake. Just like a total Freudian slip. Be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, dad. <laughs> Pep. Oh, <laughs> um. I think that's a, a good stopping point um, from a cracker of a game. We do really recommend, if you're going to rewatch a game from this weekend, that is the one to check out. Um, hmm. And, yeah, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk some tactics. Looking forward to it.
Okay, welcome back. We are going to talk some tactics as we do each week. I think my question, we've sort of been dancing around it a little bit through our conversation so far today. Um, but in watching the Brighton Man United game, in watching the West Brom game, in watching the Tottenham game, in watching the Arsenal game, and in the Man City game, um, the question that jumped to mind to me was, how do you defend a lead? When you're up, if it's one goal, it's 1-0, it's 2-1, whatever it might be in the context, West Brom 3-2, you're up by one goal. How do you hang on to that lead and close out the game with all three points? Um, I, I know those games are kind of like spread out in sort of the quality of the teams on either side that are defending the lead and, and who they are playing against. Arsenal had that fluky goal to go up against a better Liverpool. West Brom way up on this better Chelsea. Man City up early on maybe a better Leicester now. Um, but it, I guess in, in, in these games, yeah, like how do you kill the game off? What is it that you should be doing as a squad? And I imagine that the answer to this question is probably different depending on who you are and who you're playing. But um, yeah, I wanted to kick it off and, and hear your thoughts, thoughts on that. Yes, I think I think you're right when you say that the the question definitely has some complexity to it that only the context uh, could help you solve. Um, I definitely wrestled with it a little bit, uh, tossing and turning last night uh, to think about try to how to approach answering that question because, like you said, I think so much of what it takes to close out a game when you're in the lead is context dependent, what you're doing, what they're doing, what you're good at, what you're not. Um, and yet I do think we can step back a little bit and talk a little bit about the principles um, behind trying to hold a lead. And they're not different, any different than the principles of, of the game generally, but it's really just the slight ways that they've changed and what they might mean for you as you, kind of approach your your second half or as your team might try to approach uh, the end of a game. Um, so when you think about taking the lead in a game, um, you know, there are a few principles of the game that are going to are gonna kind of represent more significance to you in a particular way. So the first one, for example, is possession. Right, possession when you are tied at the beginning of a game, at, at, at least for some amount of time, maybe not more than 15 minutes, but for at least 15 minutes when you are tied, um, possession is, is, is meaningless unless it is building towards danger for your opponent. Um, but once you're ahead, possession means a lot um, because the other team can't literally cannot score the a goal on you if you ha- have the ball, Right. So to a certain extent, possession becomes a lot more valuable. And I think the sense of urgency to turn possession into something, that starts to diminish as well. Um, right, within within a certain within you know, within reason, which I'll get to, I think what, what's reasonable or not, maybe a little bit later. Um, the second thing is transition. Um, transition, I, I would argue at least that transition points, so when you're changing from attack to defense. Um, or vice versa, um, those are the greatest opportunities and greatest vulnerabilities in almost every game, right? So when you are 
playing with 90% of possession or when you're playing with 50-50% of possession and the ball's constantly being lost, that is, that's totally going to define how many of these large, vulnerable points there are in a game. Um, a lot of times that's why games that tend to be kind of explosive on the score on the scoreboard tend to be games where there's a real fight, a dogfight in the midfield, and the, fi- and the ball is constantly being lost and, re- and re-won by the same team um, because those are hard as a defense to anticipate um, and to adapt to on the fly. So transitions are something you really want to avoid when you have the ball. So that might mean that you give up the ball and don't transition into defense that often. It might mean you keep the ball and don't transition into in, into defense very often. It could be either way. Um, but you you don't you don't really want to have a lot of transitions. Or if you do, every time you have a transition, you want it to be predictable. You know, you want it to maybe be slow so that you can predict it, or predictable because you give them something clear so that they'll take it and you can position yourself, uh, you know, appropriately to, to, to neutralize it as, it as it progresses. But transitions are really big. Um, the third thing is that how you defend is, is still the same, but you want to think about that, uh, I think, frequently because with the lead in hand, um, like I said, in, you know, to the point of transitions, when you go to defend, um, you really want to make sure that you're making play predictable for everybody behind you, right? So a good example of this is having a clear line set. You know, where are we going to start defending? Um, and also, where are we going to push play, right? Are we pushing players, you know, every time they try to come up, are we going to push them towards the center of the field and overpower them because we have we have more players in the center? Are we going to push them wide and corner them against the sideline? You know, what are we going to give them? Right? Where do we want them to take their bite? Uh, that, that becomes important. Um, and once you have that figured out, to play really compact, to make sure you're compact as a group, moving. Um, right, It really goes hand-in-hand with transition, but those principles of defense are going to be things that you want to prioritize in your mind as soon as you lose the ball. Um, which you should be doing all the time. But given that you have a lead, right, maybe you even lean on that a little bit more because it's hard to think of everything all at once. So consider how are you going to get into that trans- defensive shape right away? Where are you going to push them uh, to make the play predictable, to slow it down, um, right? The next thing, which I think is one of the things that is most um, unique to being ahead, is this sense of urgency. The other team should, as time progresses, have a greater and greater sense of urgency, which is likely, if not always, going to lead to more risk-taking. And you should really ask yourself, I think, depending on how much time and, and when this all happens, you should really try to find time to ask yourself and evaluate how are they going to take their risks? What are those risks going to look like? Is it going to mean a higher defensive line? Is it going to mean more runs into the back? Right, Because if you can start to anticipate where those risks are going to come, then not only can you come up with a plan to neutralize it, but you can actually come up with a plan to punish those risks. Um, and so thinking about where those risks are going to come up, that's another principle you're going to want to pay attention to. And I think finally, there's like two other things that you want to keep in mind, which I think go really for all the time, but maybe are something just to highlight when you're ahead. Avoid set pieces. <laughs> you really don't want to invite set pieces because those are, you know, 
Chaos. Chaos. Things can really go wrong in a set piece. Um, people can have very well executed plans in a set piece um, that you may not really be able to anticipate in a more fluid form of the game. Um, that's avoiding playing the box because of all of the freaking penalty kicks we've been seeing uh, and avoiding, uh, you know, uh, any kind of set piece, I think, is, is a valuable thing. But one thing I want to remind everybody, I know that some of these principles certainly seem to speak to a more defensive uh, style of play, um, but you always want to try to score when you think you have even a reasonable chance. There's no reason to not score. Um, maybe the only caveat that I put sometimes, and I remind my players, and I've done this personally at least, is I tell them no play should end without a cross or a shot. And the reason I say that to them is not just because I think that's good practice for any offensive attack, like let's always have a shot at the end, but when you're playing ahead and you still want to play aggressive, you still want to score a goal, because like you said, sometimes one goal is just not going to do it, especially in what we've seen in the recent play in, in the Premier League. Um, you you want to make sure that it ends with a shot or a cross because that's going to stop play nine times out of ten. A shot that goes wide, it's going to it's gonna reshape, it's going to give you time to get back. It's the lost balls in transition, especially near the opponent's 18 sometimes, that can be devastating. Your defense is so high, um, and transition, even if you have a good plan, is not something you can get to quick enough to stop the opposing team. So make sure you end with a shot, make sure you end with a cross. Now, what does that mean, right? All put together. Well, all things equal... Right. If you could do anything with your team, if you could send them out there like a field of robots and download the data you wanted to and make them play the way you wanted to, the ideal thing to play right, when you are a goal up or in the lead of any kind is to play high possession where your transitions to defense are very predictable, slow, and infrequent, right? Like when we lose the ball, we lose it in the opponent's corners, and then we reset. Um, or we, you know, we always foul if they get this kind of thing, right? You want to be productive. And if you can, of course, keep the ball as much as possible. You want your defensive line to be super clear. You want to stay compact. And then you really want to try to think about where are this, where is this team going to take its risks? And how am I going to be both ready for that neutralize that and then counter right whatever counter means in that context but i think as you kind of alluded to things are not always equal and so i wouldn't want any you know prospective coach or anybody listening to necessarily walk away with well you know when my team goes up especially late in the game this is how they should play because that that recipe that i just laid out there is is more of a thought experiment than a real uh you know application uh, tool set, um, toolkit, you know, what, what you want to do is you also want to consider, I think, some bigger questions. I think the first question you need to consider is why are you ahead, right? Are you winning this game because of a structure, a plan, a process, an approach that is working for you? If it's working for you, then, you know, that might not mean that oh, well, you know, what's been really working for us is this counter, but let's play high possession now that we're in the lead. You know, that that might not be the play because as you've seen in these games that we've, we've talked about, sometimes it's about playing a style of play that is effective even if you have opportunities to play other styles, right? Even if you're getting the space to press, even if you're given the ball to have high possession, that doesn't mean that that's going to be the effective style for you. Uh, and so you might not want to do something just because you can, right? Or because you think it's, because it would be nice if you could, right? So why is it? If on the other hand, you're, you're, you're winning, but it feels random, 
It doesn't feel like you really have a foothold in this game and that you got lucky. Well, then all of this is out the window. You need to think about why you're struggling. Why are you having such a hard time? Seal up those those holes and, and just continue with the game, hopefully on a better foot. Um, take take the goal for Lady Luck and play like it's 0-0. Zero, zero. Um, because it likely, I mean, it likely will be if you're really struggling. Um, and this was just a fluke, you know, an accident of some kind. Now, the other question I think you need to ask yourself, which I think I've kind of alluded to also, is how do you expect them to change? I think this goes hand in hand with that idea of what risks do you expect them to take? Um, but the reason I say that is because, you know, Maybe you were having a lot of success with a high possession style of play in the first half, um, and so you just plan to do that again. Uh, but you're not considering that they might change the, you know, a few players, uh, change the personnel a little bit, and then start to attack some of your weaker players in that possession game, and suddenly that plan maybe isn't working as well, right? Um, so you you need to think about how they might try to change. Now, this is the one thing that is the hardest to do. Right? How will you anticipate how a team changes? Especially if you know this is a change that they have a whole halftime to decide uh, and, to, and to implement right? as a group. It's really hard. Sometimes you might even play yourself there by you know, putting too much on the expectations of what the other team will do. Um, which is really, I think, at the end of the day where you got to remember you're just a coach. Uh, and even if you're a player with a great idea, you're only one of 11. It takes a whole group uh, to make something work. And just because you know what the other team is going to do, doesn't mean that your group of 11 is going to be able to do the exact opposite to counter it. Um, and you can't, you, you know, I think sometimes Pep Guardiola might get blamed for this kind of thing. Although I don't, I don't know necessarily if I would agree or not, but just to use that as an example, the idea that you, 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 you try to do too much, you try to stretch your squad too much, to adapt to a style of play you think you're going to be facing only to have that backfire because the group is not cohesive uh, or they struggle in one or two of those uh, on one or two of the, 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 the elbows that are linking things together and things start to fall apart. So understand, you know, what is it that your team can do, right? Um, always lean into your strengths, lean away from your weaknesses, address what the vulnerabilities are that you might have seen. If this feels more chance than, than, than born out of, you know, structure or process. Um, but more, but I think, you know, once you know, once you ask yourself that question, why am I ahead? That's really the starting point before you start to implement any of the other principles in a real way. Um, I think I think I also want to just point out that you know when you go ahead in the game and how much you can implement as a coach, um, at the end of the day, always boils down to the players. It always boils down to the players, and not necessarily just on an individual level, but really as a group. Um, this is why, and this is maybe just you know me taking out some ad space for this, uh, but it's why at a young age we don't want to teach players how to play a role. We wanna we wanna give them opportunities to develop as problem solvers um, because problem solvers problem solvers will understand the principles of the game they'll understand what possession means um, when you have when you're ahead or when you're not they'll understand uh, what transitions look like and what makes them good or bad as you transition to defense or to offense they're going to have this understanding of a sense of urgency and they're not only going to have the experience with it but they will have tried their own hand at solving it. 
Um, and so when you get into these bigger, more elite games, it's that underlying ability to be a problem solver and to adapt on the fly. And then the chemistry you've built with the other players to do it together, your communication style, or maybe even your culture of communication itself, that's going to facilitate that group play that'll solve that problem. You know, I don't think you can always, you know, you can always say that it's the coach's fault when a team doesn't, you know, adapt to the changes that the other team makes. That's something that the group needs to have developed. Sometimes that's uh, uh, challenges that the players have themselves. You know, a player that can do one or two things beautifully and with great technique to finish or to individually defend, but struggles to read the game. That 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 gap, that little you know um, ceiling on their vision and 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 ability to read the game can be the difference maker when the other team decides to change things up. And I think that in games that are even until very late, right, you can kind of get a pass because things won't probably change dramatically because it feels like things are close. But games where the goals come in the first 15 minutes, they're much riper for a lot of tactical transitions or changes or personnel changes. And your team being able to respond to that on the fly is really, at the end of the day, what's going to get you through this um, more than anything that the coach might understand or want to implement, I think, at that higher level. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it in this particular way, because I think a lot of what I heard from you, I was taking some notes and some of the stuff I wrote down was it's a very responsive kind of mindset and you want to kind of build this into your team to know how to respond to what the other team is going to do. So uh, in in my mind, that feels sort of like you you kind of want to just counter the other team's strategy and, you know, it's not purely defending, um, but it's not an offense minded structure, right? It's not like go out, attack, 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 try to get the second goal to kill off the game. Um, and I think I've seen kind of both sides of the coin. Like I've seen, particularly watching a lot of Arsenal, like they go up and then they try to kill off the game. And that's when they get exposed because they put, are drawn out too much and the other team is able to hit them on the counter and defensive errors, whatever it might be. Um, but I guess maybe like the flip side to that would be like the Tottenham game where I think Jose did try to do that with them to play this really responsive sort of sitting back, taking chances as they can, not overcommitting, playing kind of slow, a lot of fouls um, the, in a smart way. I'm not saying that as a criticism, um, but it kind of like, may, maybe it's not, maybe that game is not a great example because it's such a fluky goal that kind of pushes over the difference. But mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I can understand, I guess, just as a fan, like if you're watching that game and feeling like, man, I really wish like they had just gone full tilt, like really push the uh, bed, very aggressive, push the attack and, and killed it off with the second goal. But I get what you're saying. And I, and I think it makes sense and it makes sense in most contexts. There's just sometimes where things like that can happen and no I, tactics I think, can really <laughs> yes. get you out of that. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think that, um, a book to read if you're interested in how to approach keeping a lead uh, that has very little to do with soccer and maybe I've already mentioned is The Art of War. The Art of War is the perfect book to read because The Art of War really is, I think, I mean, I'm sure 
you know, you could read a spark notes itself to, to give you some of the highlights. But what you learn in that book more than anything is that you do not want to give the opponent what they want and, and you want to know as much about what they're going to do as you can. Um, so if your opponent wants to fight, don't fight them. If your opponent doesn't want to fight, fight them. And, uh, which sounds super simple. Um, but I think gets to the heart of what being ahead means. Being ahead means you can build your expectations around one thing, which is that the other team as time progresses will need to take chances. What those chances will look like may be hard to predict because sometimes a team is so fragmented that they don't even know what they're going to look like themselves. But if you have any sense of what that's going to look like, just from the, the you know the powerful players that they may have, where they distribute on the field, to tactical things you've seen on camera, you know, filmed in their previous games, if you can anticipate that, then you have a great opportunity, right? to make them pay for them. That is how you seal up your second goal. I think that might mean that you press them because you know that they're going to rely on build-up play uh, and they're going to expect to get that. And really what they're thinking about is, well, when I'm in their third, a la Man City, this is what we're going to do this half. You look at the second half of Leicester, of that Leicester game, Leicester comes out and starts to fight for the ball in midfield. Now, how much of that is planned? I don't know. But it interrupts this idea of, well, we're just going to go back and set up there with this, you know, youngster, tall dude. I can't remember his name. is Neil or something like that. He hits the crossbar off a header, which, you know, we shouldn't overlook. It was a nice hit. But, you know, that interrupted their play. So it doesn't have to be defensive. It doesn't have to be conservative. But it should always look like a trap. Know that they're going to have to do something. Make them take those risks more than yourself. And... And then punish them for that and get those extra goals. I, I really think that um, that is – that's I, – I, in a way, if you will go back to that Leicester game, I'll come I have another call for that Leicester game. Look at the goal that Vardy flicks in, that beautiful flick. How does that happen? Well, Leicester kind of presses up into the center of the field, that middle third. Man City is playing a little casually and plays a bad pass back to Nathan Ake, who gets it in the right-hand corner there and is kind of forced to play out of that space without a lot of options. Sends a long ball, which is immediately won back by Leicester in the middle of the field. Two passes later, and Vardy's running onto a ball in the six. You know, that that was there because they were fighting for the ball in that space. Did they win the ball in immediately transition? Not exactly, but it was the pressure they were putting that was throwing things off balance. Um, and I and I I think that as a as a trap laying situation, you can know one thing. If City gets pressed, they're gonna try to play out. That's what they're gonna do. They're gonna try to beat you like that. Um, and if you are good enough at setting your trap, you're waiting for that to happen and you're making the most of those opportunities. I just think that that's the one thing, right? Otherwise, you should be playing the game like you're not ahead. Everything else you should be doing should be like what you were doing the entire game, adjusting to the defense, I mean, to the other, to the opponent's changes, trying to work your style of play because you know what's effective for you and you know what's ineffective for them, right? You should be doing the exact same work you've always been doing, whether your approach was more conservative or more aggressive. But the one guarantee when you're up is that the other team is going to have to take risks. It's just about what they are and how you're going to make the most of them when they show up. Um, 
We're going to kick it to a quick break, and then we'll come back to wrap up with some predictions for week four. All right, welcome back. We are going to wrap up this week's show uh, doing some predictions. Looking forward to week four. Uh, we were talking about this during the break, but I think watching so much Premier League is making us both just really excited about clubs that we probably wouldn't have paid as much attention to previously. Um, like, I think we're both just becoming huge Crystal Palace and Brighton fans. 100%. And in a way that's just would not have been part of my life uh, in previous years <laughs> watching the Premier League. So um, really enjoying enjoying getting to get a closer look at some, some other squads outside the, the big clubs. So, yeah, I want to go to you first and maybe hear what, what you were picking for an upset. Upset of the week. Hmm. And once again, it always comes down to who you think is a real upset. You know, I mean, who's who who – who is really as as considered a weak team in your own mind, you know, compared to everybody else? It's it's hard here to see one that jumps out to me right away that I feel like is a possibility. The Aston Villa Liverpool game would be a real upset, there's no doubt, but I can't see that necessarily happening. Um I West Ham Leicester could also be, you know, one that would seem like a, a clear and obvious uh, you know, upset material, but I don't see that happening. I don't know if we still consider Brighton an underdog. I'm very excited for Brighton to play Everton. Um, I think it'll be a, an, an even-ish match. Um, although Everton, I think, probably has the upper hand there, pretty, pretty, pretty significantly. So I think, I think, I don't know how to say this with a lot of confidence, but I, I want to go there um, to pick mine. The last, the last thing, which I hope you'll pick up. Maybe you, maybe you will. Chelsea Crystal Palace. I hate to wish that on on Frank Lampard. I, I think I got a soft spot in my heart for that guy, but I I'll let that one pass for this time. I'm gonna go Brighton. Brighton. Uh, uh, another Tariq Lamptey uh, uh, show uh, to bring down Everton uh, at what would be 7 a.m. my time. A reasonable game, I'd say, uh, <laughs> on Saturday morning. I like that pick, Rod. I like that pick. I was eyeing that one too. I'm actually going to go maybe a little bit out of left field here. I'm going to say Tottenham over Manchester United is my upset. And I know that's Mm. maybe closer margins. I looked up the betting odds though, and United is favored by a decent bit in this game. Oh my goodness. And take my money. I I just, yeah. I, I like Tottenham's squad more. I think Jose Mourinho for all of his, warts and faults is leagues a better manager than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and yeah I, I see Tottenham coming off a really disappointing frustrating lo- tie not loss but felt like mm-hmm. a loss and and bouncing back in a very strong way United have some some question marks and I, I and I think Tottenham is going to ask the right questions in this game so that that would be my upset um Oh, on the on the flip side, if I'm seeing a guaranteed three points on the board, I actually think it's Manchester City playing against Leeds. I mm. think Pep Guardiola is he's getting dragged in the English media. Uh, yes, after that loss, 
and I think with some good reason. And Bielsa gets a lot of praise. Leeds are the hot new team. And I think Man City is just going to absolutely smash Leeds this weekend to really uh, prove a point and be like, yo, you know, we're still here. We've got, we've got some, we've got some problems, but we're still big boys and we're going to show you what's up. So I, I'm picking Man City over Leeds in a big win. Uh, mm. What were you thinking? Man City's Man City leads. What an interesting choice. Um, at first when you said it, I was like, duh, right? Like, of course. But the more that I think about it, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. I think I like it could this. be a close. I could be a close game. I I was thinking about it. Um, on paper, this should be nowhere near close, but. There is no way that Leeds is going to go press Man City. There's no way that this isn't another 80-20% you know, possession distribution, Man City and Leeds respectively. And yet, Leeds is ex- that's this is what Leeds does. That's exactly what Le- Leeds would have it no other way. They want to counter. They want to be fast. They've got the forwards to do it. They've been putting out goals. And honestly, the thing that I think Leeds has that Man City doesn't is they have nothing to lose. If Leeds loses this game to Man City, ah, what could they have expected? I mean, the favorite for the league, essentially, right? Uh, playing, ah, I don't know. It could be. I think it could be closer. I, I'm actually very intrigued to see how that game goes. Now that I think about it more, I'm excited to see my my guaranteed dub. Tottenham is going to beat Manchester United, and I hope they beat him really, really bad. Uh, I haven't really watched a full game of Tottenham, and so like the strength of this pick does not come from that. It comes from the fact that I do not think there will be more than one degree of difference between the Manchester United we've seen this weekend, uh, the Manchester we saw last weekend, and the Manchester we are going to the United we are going to see this coming weekend. Um, and I think Tottenham has a is is a way stronger team. Um, if 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 not just because I think they have an actual plan of attack, uh, I think that I think that this is going to be honestly a good game as well in the sense that Mourinho is coming off of a tie that I'm sure infuriates him. Um, and he's going to be looking to come and crush Manchester United, be able to go to the press and say, what? You know, and what is Manchester United? And just, you know, trash them the whole time. Um, that is my guaranteed smash. Guaranteed smash. And uh, honestly, I put in all my, I'm going to put all my, my, the dollar bills that I can, that I can spare uh, on Tottenham to beat Manchester United, especially hearing that Manchester United is favored. I, that's, I don't know how they do that. Um, Granted, I'm doing this having never seen the team I'm so sure is going to win. But, you know, that's the kind of guy I am. That's the kind of advice I give. Uh, tell me that Tottenham isn't going to run Manchester United into the ground. I would say otherwise. I have a feeling we're going to agree on this last little bit here mm. in our game of the week. Chelsea Crystal Palace for me. I, I, I know it's kind of maybe crazy to say that, but there's just an organization to Crystal Palace that I think is really cool. There's some exciting play through Eze, Wolf Zaha that could really give that Chelsea backline trouble. And on the flip side, this could also be the game that Chelsea really gels together and wins 4-0. And it's a statement game that really is like 
oh yeah, we look back on that and say that's when Chelsea really started to figure out the squad and take off. So I could see Crystal Palace kind of sneaking out a, a gritty win, uh, really defending very well. And I could also see a Chelsea total masterclass. Um, so either way, I think it's going to be exciting and, the, and there'll be some cool narratives to check out. Um, so I'm really looking forward to an early Saturday morning waking up and just seeing mm. a, a London Derby. 100% agree. I would pick the exact same game. Um, I am both excited and frightened to see what happens to Chelsea in this Crystal Palace game. I think it could be really even. I think it could be. A, I think it could be a kind of a clear, a clear win for either team. I don't know if I see a route necessarily. Although I, I could see what you're saying. If Chelsea really gels, they could obviously have. They have the firepower to really put this game away. Um, but I think that will be a great game. The one game I just want to make sure that our listener uh, hears again, for the record, that I will be watching this weekend is the 6 a.m. Sunday game between Arsenal and Sheffield United. Civil War. Um, Civil War, listener. It's going to be a showdown, uh, like, like hopefully like none other, hopefully involving Sheffield with a win because they haven't done that yet. Um, and, uh, and if they don't, well, at least, at least it can't be put on me. The boys, the boys are back in town. Uh, that's another game to keep your eye on because uh, these blades, you know, hopefully – they're just getting started. I know in my heart, Sheffield United has not scored a goal yet in the Premier League this season. Oh, I, no, it's perfect. I know in my heart <laughs> what is coming. I was really trying to avoid talking about that game altogether because Arsenal have a way of making struggling teams look like prime Barcelona, and they will mm. absolutely absolutely lose this game to Sheffield this weekend. That's not Ooh. a self-jinx. I'm not, like, trying to play my <laughs> games. That's just, like, that's just uh, what Arsenal does. Oh, it, yeah. It's 2-2 it's uh. that close for. <laughs> um, Rodrigo, it was a pleasure talking with you. Hopefully next week we'll be a little more calm so we have a little less to digest and yes. can go a little deeper. But, um, as always, really enjoy <laughs> it. And, listener, thank you for your time. Thank we'll, you, listener. We'll uh, we'll reconnect again next week. Absolutely, it was a pl- the pleasure was all mine, Duffy. And cheers to hopefully another exciting week.